Welcome to this episode of Ms. Law Explains Things. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Ms. Law Explains Things. So yes, in the spirit of like double episodes, right, we are going to look at it from now a more macro perspective. So I just talked about uh, the low-cost airlines. Now we're going to talk about inflation, deflation or stagflation and do a very brief recap of the macroeconomic aims that we have learned before. So what we actually understand here is right that besides the whole basic idea of what all these macroeconomic goals are, we need to understand how all of them interact with one another, how they inform each other and how they affect one another. There are a lot of links in between. So let me just go through some very standard you know, ideas that we already kind of know. Right, Number one is when there is right a slowdown economic growth or when there's a decline in the level of real national income, we say that because of lower production levels, there's a decrease in the demand for labor, right? And therefore, higher cyclical unemployment, correct? So that's a link between economic growth and unemployment, a trade-off, right? So another thing is, if I were to experience high levels of economic growth, which means that my AD actually shifts near the upward sloping part of the long-run aggregate supply curve, I might suffer from demand pool inflation. So that's another interaction between the macro goals, right? And obviously, uh, another related issue that people do not really talk about is what enough is this deflation and stagflation. So probably the first thing that we actually learn is, oh, inflation is a sustained increase in general price level. And we can see it from, you know, the diagram that we draw for ADAS, the price levels going up. But of course, there's a lot of ways to moderate, right, uh, the increase in the general price level by pushing out, for example, the AS or slowing down the increase of AD. But one of the most interesting topics recently this year is what kind of inflation will we get over the next three years? So will it be more deflation, a rise of inflation, or a combination of both, known as stagflation? So the vast majority of economists in this time agree that deflation will continue at least through next year. And where does deflation come from? Deflation comes from either right, a sustained decrease in aggregate demand or an increase in the AS. But we know that deflation is not generally harmful, right? It's only harmful if AD falls because it's going to cause cyclical unemployment. It is not harmful, it's benign actually, if we are talking about something that actually pushes out the AS, right? Because it means that actually the cost of production is falling and actually there's nothing totally wrong with that, okay? So they say right now that the deflation is going to continue to persist even though other groups of people say, higher inflation is unavoidable. This is because we are all looking at things from a slightly different perspective. So let's just look and actually kind of think about whether each of these perspectives are valid or not. Okay, and think about whether or not they are harmful to the economy and whether or not they tend to be persistent. These are two very important ideas right, which have been become more and more, I would say, in vogue or popular uh, when we talk about these kinds of macroeconomic goals. Like, is this thing a very severe problem? Is it going to be prolonged? Is it easy for the governments to address? So the latest forecast, the information, so let's go back to the information, is that there's been increase in core personal consumption expenditure which is a favoured measure of inflation, right? But it's been very minimal, like, come on, 1%, 1.5%, that's like nothing compared to, like, hyperinflation. All of them are below the target inflation rate of 2%, and we also know that the Federal Reserve, which is the US Central Bank, which actually manages the monetary policy aspect, has been targeting near-zero interest rates. And we know that why they're targeting the near-zero interest rates is to stimulate consumption and uh, investment, right? So we want both private firms as well as personal individuals to 
borrowed from the banks to stimulate aggregate demand given these very bleak economic times. So economists, of course, have produced like a whole wealth of arguments, right? So we definitely know that unemployment is going to remain high. Consumption, consumer demand will be weak. People are not going to be incentivized to want to consume. Their incomes are falling. There's a lot of uncertainty. They don't have consumer confidence. Definitely not going to be something that is going to be increasing in the near future. And because of that, we know that this was actually weigh very heavily on unemployment. So there will be little pressure also uh, to increase wages, right? Because people may want to increase wages when times are better. But right now, it's not going to be a big thing. There's also been a lot of changes in consumer habits. So like the greater adoption of e-commerce as we know, more frugal lifestyles and higher savings. So think about how this also affects the size of the multiplier when the society as a whole becomes more frugal. The marginal propensity to save increases and therefore the size of the multiplier decreases because the multiplier K is the reciprocal of the marginal propensity withdrawal. Basically, K equals to 1 over MPW. And what consists of the MPW, one factor, is the marginal propensity to save. So when people are more likely to save, there's going to be a higher degree of leakages from the circular flow of income, and therefore less money will continue to circulate, right? less income will circulate in the economy, and the final impact on the real national income will also be less. So because of that, the multiplier also likely to become smaller or diminish. So even if I were to pump in ooh, lots of like, consumption and investment, it doesn't mean that there's going to be this very significant impact on aggregate demand. Right, so think about it from that perspective. On another hand, on the business side, there's also a lot of like underused capacity. So that means we are not operating at like the vertical section of the LRAS, right? We are probably somewhere at the horizontal or somewhere near the upper sloping, even if we start to recover. So there's a lot of factories that are intact, but they're only semi-operational. Another thing is high uncertainty. When there's a lot of uncertainty, people cannot ex estimate the expected returns from the investment and they're not going to invest much, okay? Because uh, they want to be able to be more certain about the economic conditions. There's also been a softening of oil prices, which means that oil prices are starting to decline. What does that mean? It means that the SRAS is increasing because cost of production is falling. Oil is an input or a raw material or an intermediate uh, product used for the production of final goods. And we know that because of that, COVID-19 will start to spur increases in automation, which will boost productivity, which doesn't sound so bad because it's going to boost the long-run aggregate supply curve by pushing out the full employment level of national income. So most economists agree that because of all these factors, it's going to start to limit price increases. Cost push inflation is going down. Demand pull inflation is also going down. But what happens after next year? That is where the debate starts. So one of the points of contention relates to this policy response to COVID-19. So a lot of central banks have pumped lots and lots of money into the major economy. The Fed alone has unleashed US $2 trillion, okay? And they have basically flooded the economy with more money so that people can spend the money, right? On top of that, there's also been a lot of fiscal spending, which basically means increased government expenditure, especially in advanced economies. Like, the US lawmakers have approved more than US $3 trillion in emergency funding. Singapore is actually no stranger to that as well. We have so many budgets, right? Okay, so the bulk of the money right, has not gone to banks, but actually into the broader economy to stimulate spending. And because of that, unfortunately, the US is actually uh, running a budget deficit. It means it's spending more than it actually earns. And total public debt is close to 100%, approaching the World War II record level of 106% of GS GDP. So in the absence of actually increasing tax, the debt will have to be monetized by the F, the Fed, basically. 
right? And the result, the resulting effect usually, so this is a bit of an extension, is that the debasement of the US dollar will lead to the weakening of the US dollar and it could actually be inflationary because of all of the important inflation. But the people who support the idea of deflation point out that prolonged unemployment, right, definitely going to be happening, aid is falling. Low wage pressures, definitely, and the slump in consumer demand and business investment will more than compensate for these inflationary effects. And they also know that Japan has been monetizing deficit and debt for years and still struggling with this idea of deflation. Right, so deflation, remember, is a falling AD and all of these things that I've just been described are all characteristics of deflation, a deflationary era. So the IMF former chief economist Oliver Blanchard, while maintaining that deflation is likely, acknowledges a scenario where deflation could take hold because of more and more successive increases in fiscal spending. You are trying to boost the AD. There will come a time when eventually the AD will start to push up the general price level as you move along the LIS. So think about it. They say multiply the initial fiscal package by 2 or 3 and it leads to a large increase in the ratio of debt to GDP. If the Fed continues to keep interest rates low, right, then this would actually kind of like boost right, your consumption and investment right, because it's trying to prevent an explosion of debt servicing costs because if your interest rates are low, you don't have to owe as much when you actually repay your debt. And also under pressure from a previous government, the economy will start to overheat. And inflationary expectations would set in, inflation could take off. This is probably still very improbable given the current situation. Another scenario for inflation cited by another group of economists would result from deglobalization. So something that you might not have really heard of explicitly, but basically is the opposite of globalization. Because in the last 20 years, globalization has accelerated. We have encouraged more outsourcing, efficient production, EDC, but now the process is going into reverse. Supply chains are shifting out of China, inventories are increasing, more production is being reshot to a more expensive location, and there's lots and lots of export restrictions. Right, so last time you thought that protectionism was bad, well, wait until you see deglobalization. Because of export restrictions, there's been rising pressures to curb migration, which will lead to higher prices, wage costs. All which things were going to be affecting the SRAS. You are basically pushing up the cost of production, whether it's labor costs or cost of raw materials. And some of these shifts actually will be permanent. So remember at the start of this episode, I said, think about whether these shifts are permanent. Can they be reversed? Are they long term? Can they be addressed? If they are going to be permanent, then maybe the impacts are also going to be more permanent. So while the inflationary effects might not materialize, they will definitely emerge once the recovery gets underway. So... The deflationists, the people who like support deflation, counter that this inflationary impact is kind of like exaggerated because they don't think it is as easy for supply chains to shift out of China and where they are deeply entrenched and it's going to be a very slow process. Secondly, they also say that many of the shifts will be to other low-cost uh, locations which may not succeed necessarily lead to higher prices, which is true. Right, because it doesn't mean that if I move from one place to another, my, my uh, production, right, oh, it's going to be like a very significant increase in cost or decrease in cost. So there are a lot of people are still thinking about whether more inflation or deflation is on the cards because we don't really know how all these factors are going to interact with one another because at the same time, there's a lot of excessive debt that are held by companies and households and governments in this particular time. So... Interestingly, uh, from this entire concept of inflation, we know that there's going to be a lot of losers, uh, of course, the savers, right? Uh, the savers are going to lose the pension funds, insurance company and holders of cash because the purchasing power is going to be eroded. But the economy as a whole, thankfully, will be back on the growth path.
But of course, there's still another distinct possibility which is a little bit more dangerous uh, known as stagflation. So the idea of stagflation is that unemployment would remain high if COVID-19 persists, right? Because of all of these, you know, infections and things in the recession. But at the same time, output could be restricted because factories are forced to operate below capacity. So coupled with the rising protectionism and the supply chain disruption, this could add to a shortage of goods and this may push up prices. So you have unemployment and inflation at the same time and it's going to be aggravated also because of the monetization of all of the fiscal deficit. So the gloomy scenario is a minority view but you cannot completely rule it out because it might happen. And the issue with stagflation is that it creates a serious dilemma for policymakers, especially central banks. Should they attack inflation by raising interest rates? But if they do that, they're going to create even higher unemployment because they're going to bring down AD. Or should they tolerate high inflation to save jobs right, and reduce the real value in debt, but then create more and more other problems? right? So stagflation sounds like a very dangerous thing, right? but it is also a very, very distinct possibility. So we don't really know what exactly is happening here, so we call it the Goldilocks economy. Not too hot, not too cold with moderate growth, low unemployment, low in inflation, all these things are no longer possible, it is considered history. So I hope that this particular interesting um, discussion here has reminded you about you know, the three distinct types of uh, inflation, I would say, uh, under this topic of like, you know, inflation. So there's inflation, there's deflation and stagflation, and there are arguments to support all of them. But I hope that you can actually just take a closer look at the article and think about how each of these actually fit into the various macroeconomic goals as well as which one do you think is the more likely scenario. Thank you and I'll see you next week.